I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am bouncing off the walls today because we have such an interesting subject. I've been dying to get onto this podcast and I have succeeded and we're doing it. But I have the fabulous Beth with me today. Beth, tell us who we got on. Yeah, thanks, Lena. Um, we've got Tanya Brannigan with us today. She's journalist and historian who was The Guardian's China correspondent for seven years. And she's here to talk to us about her first book, which is Red Memory, The Afterlifes of China's Cultural Revolution. So Tanya, thank you. Welcome to History Hack. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really excited. I've been dying to get the Cultural Revolution up and going. And I'm so beyond happy. This is something that I've worked on at university level, uh, which was, let's say, uh, only a few years ago. Moving on very swiftly. Tanya, I'm really interested to know what made you write this book and about the Cultural Revolution specifically? Red Memory really came about because I just felt that the Cultural Revolution was everywhere and nowhere in China. And so I kept stumbling uh, across the effect it was still happening, the effect it was still having on China today. And yet it's something obviously that is very much relegated to the fringes, both in terms of official discourse. You know, the authorities obviously don't like to talk about it. But also it's such a traumatic subject that there are many, many people in China who don't want to talk about it either. And yet while I was there, a few people uh, started speaking out more about it. And I was just really fascinated uh, by the way it had shaped China and continues to shape China to this day. And I really feel you can't understand the place unless you understand the Cultural Revolution. So if we then just jump straight in, before we do dive into the Cultural Revolution, let's talk about some of the things that first led to it so what was first off basics really what was life like under the Chinese Communist Party before the revolution? It was unquestionably tough uh, but there was still quite a lot of idealism so if we think back to 1949 when the communists come to power there really was a hope that this was going to be the start of something better for China it had been through so many years of suffering invasion by foreign powers, of course, particularly the very brutal uh, Japanese occupation, um, but also sort of a period of warlordism, the feeling that the whole country was falling apart. And so when 
uh, the communists came to power, obviously there were many people who were deeply unhappy and worried about what the future held. We saw the uh, Guomindang supporters move down to Taiwan uh, when Chiang Kai-shek fled there. But there was a certain idealism, even among people who weren't communist supporters. We saw a lot of intellectuals uh, come back from abroad, for example, wanting to build this new China. And there were real improvements in life. Lifespans went up, uh, literacy went up, women were much better protected. There was a real push against forced marriage, for example. And um, we also saw workers getting more respect. We saw peasants getting land. But of course, uh, some of these things came with uh, pretty terrible consequences in that while many obviously welcomed uh, the the land reforms and it was an extraordinary change for so many farmers in the countryside, we also saw hundreds of thousands of landlords die in that process. Um, similarly, there was the anti-rightist movement. There was this very brutal purge of intellectuals and artists, which certainly I think um, in the intellectual classes really dispelled that optimism that had once been there. And then we get to the the uh, Great Leap Forward that Mao launches, which causes a, a terrible famine, uh, killing tens of millions of people. And so by 1966, when the Cultural Revolution begins, it's a very mixed picture in that in some ways, people feel that they have seen real improvements in their lives. Uh, some people have been through unimaginably painful experiences. Um, but there's also a sense that things are very tough, um, very restrictive, that officials have this extraordinary level of control over ordinary people's lives. Just want to add in here, talking about women's rights and uh, the improvement of women's lives, it's really interesting how they managed to uh, ban uh, foot binding as well, which causes unimaginable pain and, and just suffering for the women. And suddenly the Chinese Communist Party just completely ban it. And women finally feel the sort of liberation. And I know it's a small liberation, but it's a it's a liberation nonetheless. So I think um, the Kuomint, the the KMT um, under Chiang Kai Shek do start to push forward reforms, um, and there was obviously a feminist movement within China, which people can sometimes forget about as well, however sort of marginal. But but nonetheless, it's true that there were big improvements under the communists. And that's something that um, women who lived through that change said, certainly said to me. Well, I interviewed a woman who had um, joined the Communist Party in its very early years and had actually endured the long march. But I mean, the thing she said that really stuck with me was that when the Communist Party came to her village, she didn't have a name because she was very poor and she was female and the Communist Party gave her her name. And I think in some ways that summed up the recognition that some women felt that the party brought them. You've mentioned the Great Leap Forward and the Chinese famine, which, well, I'm, you can't see me doing this, but I'm doing uh, quotations in the air where they were successful, but they weren't really successful. Can you just run us through what the Great Leap Forward and the Chi Great Chinese famine were and how do they actually fall more into this whole narrative of the Cultural Revolution? So in 1958, Mao launches the Great Leap Forward and this is this extraordinarily ambitious, to the point of lunacy, frankly, uh, plan to reform the Chinese economy, uh, both in terms of industrial production and agriculture. So supercharging industrial production and completely collectivizing agriculture, bringing people into vast communes. 
it's pushed through in the most uh, naive and radical and merciless, frankly, uh, way. Um, I mean, the ambition on sort of Mao's side was, he said, to overtake the UK in terms of industrial production. Um, but in fact, of course, it was really about um, showing that China and not the Soviet Union was the sort of standard bearer for international communism and sort of the great light in the world. The way this was done was done with such uh, fervour and ruthlessness that it saw tens of millions of people die. Um, officials were reporting completely unrealistic crop yields because they felt they had to or because they wanted to uh, win favour with central authorities. And then, of course, the grain was taken away and people were left to starve. There was cannibalism. It was horrific. I mean, just unimaginably horrific. That said, people didn't always ascribe it uh, to the Great Leap Forward, even at the time. And certainly now, because the parties uh, always sort of talked about it in terms of, you know, three years of natural difficulties, that this wasn't something that the party brought on them. But even people who lived through it at the time, through this unimaginable horror, didn't necessarily connect it to the party's policies, as as strange as that might seem to us. Right. So all of these things that we've just been discussing in that you've been, the tales you've been telling us, were the pretext to the Cultural Revolution. We know the why, but can you talk us through the when and the how? it be actually began? Well, that is a very complicated question. But the the upshot really of the Great Leap Forward in political terms was that Mao's position had been undermined uh, and constrained. He had lost that absolute supremacy that he enjoyed within the party uh, and the pragmatists had sort of forced him to um, retrench really on the Great Leap Forward and, and pull back on it. He was very obviously concerned by that loss of power. And then on top of that, even looking outside the country, he was looking at the Soviet Union, where Khrushchev had obviously uh, turned his back on Stalin and denounced him posthumously. So he was thinking about his legacy. Then he saw Khrushchev brought down. So he was obviously thinking about his position there again Um, on the international stage. I think he clearly felt more vulnerable with the Sino-Soviet split. So it's a time where Mao really decides that he has to do something bold. And also, I think, perhaps because he had been sort of forced out of the economic realm because the Great Leap Forward had been such a disaster, that he's dwelling more and more on politics and and ideological factors. That's the field where he's still got the power and the authority. And so with the Great Leap Forward, he's really setting out to reassert that authority and um, wipe out all the opposition that exists within the party and reclaim what he sees as his rightful position. In terms of how it begins, I mean, it's, it's a gradual process. And I think that's one of the critical things because people don't really understand what's happening necessarily within the party. You have to remember that there's a long history already by this point of purges and of sort of ideological crusades. And it's not clear to anybody at the beginning just how big and how damaging um, and all-consuming this is going to be. And so, in fact, I mean, it it starts, as absurd as this might sound to people, with a critique of a historical play, which is interpreted, uh, almost certainly correctly, um, as a sort of allegory for the way that Mao had purged a senior leader who criticised the Great Leap Forward. And 
this essay um, was printed originally in a Shanghai newspaper, um, but then it became clear that Mao was in fact behind it. And this was really sort of his opening shot in taking on his critics, um, but also because the author of the play was a sort of, the, the, the patron of the author of the play was Liu Shaoqi, who was Mao's assumed successor, but also one of the people who'd reigned in the Great Leap Forward. It was kind of a precursor. He was gradually kind of working his way up the chain, if you so to speak. But I mean, nobody really knows at this point, clearly, it's a critique of a play, even when it becomes clear that Mao's behind it, which takes a while to emerge, it's still not very obvious to people what's happening. Then what is usually regarded by historians as the start of the Cultural Revolution comes a bit later with the May 16 notification, which is uh, circulated to senior figures within the party. And this is when it becomes clear that there's something really, really serious going on. So Mao um, says that there are representatives of the bourgeoisie who've snuck into the party um, and that some of them are still trusted by us and being trained as our successors. So it's this very clear announcement that as far as Mao is concerned, the enemy is not just outside the party, but is within and some very deep sort of process of purging is going to be required. Um, quite soon after that, we see the first big character poster go up attacking the Peking University leadership. Now, this is not a sort of a spontaneous moment as it might look. It's fairly clearly um, orchestrated by elements around Mao. And Mao very rapidly endorses that and has this uh, big character poster read out over the radio. And at that point, that's when you start to see these red guard groups forming across the capital. They're young sort of political vigilantes, essentially. They are absolutely fervent in their devotion to Mao, and they are extremely young. So some of them are students on university campuses, but some of them are 13 or 14 year old school kids. And that's when things really start to kick off. We see them beginning to denounce teachers uh, and so forth and denounce the leadership. And there's a sort of semi attempt to rein them in um, by other people within the party. But Mao says, no, um, we want to sort of push ahead. And in August, he holds this absolutely mammoth rally in Tiananmen Square in the heart of Beijing with one million Red Guards who've gathered there. He has a red armband put up on put upon him by a young Red Guard. And although he doesn't actually give a speech, his how would you describe him? Toady in chief, I suppose, Lin Biao, who's the defence minister and one of the people who's formed the personality cult, tells them that their task is to go out and destroy the four olds, which are sort of customs, culture, habits and ideas. And that is the moment at which it really transforms from being potentially a sort of a, a marginal or controllable movement to being something that has a kind of momentum of its own and really just sort of sweeps across the land. So although there'd been sort of two deaths, I believe, in Beijing in the days before the rally, um, in the next month, we see around 1,770 die in Beijing alone. It's a moment of just extraordinary power at which Mao sends the signal that the Red Guards have his backing and that they should go out and change the world. And in, in their view, in his view, you change the world by destroying uh, what's there. You've interviewed quite a few people with their uh, individual experiences through the Cultural Revolution, which is quite uh, empowering, uh, horrific, 
every single emotion comes out when you're reading what you've written. So can you talk us through some of their experiences on their 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 first day? Because everybody obviously had a, a slightly different experience. Give us a few examples of what happened in these schools and places of business. So at first, there was clearly a lot of trepidation. I mean, in the very early stages, it wasn't really clear whether the Red Guards were going to have the backing from Mao or not. Um, then, as I said, you get the August rally. And what was really striking was that sense that it gave people, you know, one of the women I spoke to talked about feeling as if you were sort of at the top of the world, really, that you just suddenly had this, I mean, for very young people who'd been living in these very strict environments, suddenly they were being elevated to this position. And they also felt a real sense of mission because remember that they'd grown up in a culture where you were being told constantly about revolutionary feats and revolutionary martyrs and, you know, battling the enemy. And their parents, of course, had done a lot of that actual sort of fighting within party ranks and so forth um, through the Japanese occupation and so forth and in, in fighting against the KMT. So, these are young people who've been brought up with the sense that you ought to have a mission and a fighting mission and yet have not really had any way to carry that out. And they are being unleashed. And I think for them, that was incredibly potent. It was exciting. They felt they were doing something important, that they were doing Mao's work. Um, and of course, because they'd been raised to revere Mao as this godlike figure, they were it, it had a sort of quasi-religious aspect to it. And it was exciting. I mean, they would, you know, they weren't in lessons anymore for young people. They were brought up in a very kind of structured and ordered society. They were now being told that they could criticize their teachers. They could criticize their parents. They could criticize those above them. And I think it was intoxicating for people at the same time. Um, you know, one of the Red Guards I spoke to who who talked about that sense of excitement and freedom because they were traveling the country, spreading the message of revolution. You know, she, she also clearly had these very sort of tortured feelings of guilt and says at the time she was refusing to take part in beatings because she felt it was wrong to do. And yet she also felt that perhaps that was a lack of passion, a lack of revolutionary commitment on her part. So there was, even at the time, there was a, a, a very complicated, ambiguous set of feelings that feeling on the one hand, this is wrong, but on the other hand, perhaps I should be doing it. And of course, in retrospect now, thinking, gosh, the responsibility I have for the things that happened. And so when you talk to people, you're talking about, you know, the murders of teachers that happened. You're talking about people being beaten and executed potentially. And in one case, one of the people I speak to in my book denounced his own mother and she was executed. And I think for any of us to imagine trying to live with that level of guilt and culpability, these things that happen to people at such young ages, and of course, that's partly why Mao did turn to the young, because they were malleable and easily formed. I suppose then linking on from that, when we say about young people and, you know, these young minds and that are... <sighs> I can't impressionable is that the right word I don't know they're easily formed they're easily persuaded are there other people that are targeted maybe particularly by young people or is it wider by wider society so I don't know people like artists or what have you are there other groups that get targeted too it ripples all the way out through China so you're seeing artists targeted scholars targeted many of China's most influential figures 
Um, you're seeing Lao Shi, for example, who's one of China's greatest writers, is found drowned in a lake after he's been harassed by Red Guards and humiliated by them. Um, many sort of key musicians, cultural figures end up killing themselves or being hounded to their deaths. But we also see officials and senior figures. I mean, both of Mao's heir parents will die in the Cultural Revolution, although not at, not at the hands of Red Guards. But we will see the violence play out across the country. And it extends right into the countryside where sort of accidents of birth condemn you. And we see entire families wiped out by local militias because they have been classed as landlords. We're talking about infants here in some cases, you know, babies in arms just murdered with the rest of their families. It's a time of unimaginable violence. And it also plays out in other realms. So the fabric of the country as well, it's um, its culture, its treasures are destroyed. We see Red Guards sort of setting fire to uh, family records and silk clothing and smashing up artworks and all of these things. It's an attempt to destroy the old and create you know, what is supposed to be this newer, purer world. And, and so, as I say, when you speak to people involved, there is this real confusion, I think, around it, a confusion they felt at the time and that they feel even more so, actually, in looking back. The Cultural Revolution lasts for about 10 years, and you'd like to seem to think that this would only take a year or two or three. My question is, you, you see this increase of violence at the beginning. Does this continue throughout the whole 10 years? Does it at any point drop? Does it get better? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It changes. It's different over the 10 years. In fact, um, some historians argue that the Cultural Revolution really only lasted around sort of two to three years, which is when the Red Guard groups were at their height um, and it was this very chaotic environment. And so you see the sort of the mass killings, but you also see the, the sort of the attacks on teachers and things. Then we see the Red Guard groups start to turn upon each other. And there's this factional fighting, which becomes extraordinarily intense. And when you, when you talk to people involved, it's often it's very hard to understand because you sort of say, well, you know, why did your faction split? And it turns out that somebody published a pamphlet or something. You're, you're saying, you know, this, this, you're attempting to understand why people were then willing to physically attack their former friends and comrades on that basis. But it's just an atmosphere of such sort of zealotry and passion. And then, of course, um, the all, all the other emotions that are present in everybody's lives, you know, personal grudges, ambition, all of those things play into it as well. Fear that, you know, you turn on somebody else because you're worried that you're going to be the target next. Otherwise, 
all these things play into it. And we, we see these factional splits, which end up in, as I said, I mean, basically warfare in some cases. If, if you look at somewhere like Chongqing, where I, I spoke to Red Guards who've been involved in these factional battles, they were battling with tanks and grenades and things that they got from the local munitions factories. It was not just brutal, but I mean, real warfare in the way that you would sort of understand it. Then after sort of late 1968, we see the Red Guard groups are essentially um, brought under control by the military. And 17 million young people end up being sent to the countryside because even Mao has, has had enough kind of of the chaos and turmoil at this point. So they're dispatched off to the countryside where they're expected to sort of stay for life, incidentally. And the official justification is that, you know, they're going to help modernise the countryside and they'll also learn from the peasantry how to be better communists and things. But it's also about very pragmatically clearing them out of the cities to try and re-establish some sort of order after this period of chaos. But we're still in a really deadly era. And so we see huge numbers of being people being persecuted and executed. It's more orderly um, to a degree, but there are still these frequent reverses in political fortune because Mao's um, ideas shift, because different factions are battling it out. There's so much political intrigue. Uh, and so the rest of the Cultural Revolution as I said, is still very deadly, but it's more organised, it's more bureaucratised in a sense, it's more stagnant. Um, the military and some sort of former cadres have kind of re-established dominance then. So if we then come on to a little bit more of like a, obviously you've told us some of the, what's happening to the people of China and what they're, what they're experiencing during this period. Uh, obviously there's those people in positions of power obviously that will be experiencing these as well um and particularly just want to focus on what sort of role that Mao's wife had during the cultural revolution now you're going to have to correct me if I say this incorrectly is it is it Jiang Qin? Jiang Qin. yeah so what kind of role was was she playing in, in in all of this she did play a very important role um she'd had an interesting sort of journey into the party she was actually previously a, a sort of Shanghai film starlet but had ended up becoming a communist quite early on and then formed her relationship with Mao, was very distrusted uh, really by people within the party and very much sidelined, not taken seriously, but controlled. It was made absolutely clear that she had to stay out of politics. And she clearly resented this um, and wanted her chance. And she saw it in the Cultural Revolution. And so she played a key role both in the political infighting, I mean, real knife fighting sort of going on at the, the top levels, but also in uh, the, the cultural side of the Cultural Revolution, which was important. Obviously, we tend to think of it in terms of violence, but there was a real attempt to remake the culture. And she was very much um, sort of at the forefront of that. So um, there's a there's a wonderful book on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which sort of talks about her phoning scriptwriters up at three o'clock in the morning or ordering a movie to be reshot because the heroine's wearing the wrong shade of red or something in, in the film. You know, she she was absolutely at the forefront of the cultural efforts, of the propaganda efforts, but also, as I said, of the political infighting. All of that said, um, it was very convenient to blame her when the Cultural Revolution ended, and particularly because the leadership didn't want to repudiate Mao entirely. So being able to blame Zhang Qing, 
there was a certain element, dare I say, it, of misogyny as well, which is not to defend the woman as being an admirable or even person in any way or her actions as justifiable. But the fact that she uh, attracted quite the vitriol and blame that she did, the fact that she was sort of the, the forefront or the focus of the criticism, I think it was also very convenient. And she said herself in her trial, because she was defiant to the end, you know, she said, I was Chairman Mao's dog. I bit whom he wanted me to bite. So quite she, a, a try to think of the right word to describe it. So she is she is very much in that kind of she 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 needs to be involved, but it's the the certain certain limits to that, isn't there? She doesn't seem like a a woman who is easily put down. No, I mean she she is a critical figure. She's a very aggressive figure. Uh, she's very vindictive in the way that she um, clearly pursues people for sort of personal reasons as, as well as political ones and she's deeply ideological but as I said all of that said it was ultimately Mao who ran the show. She was part of what was known as the Gang of Four. I'm interested to know who else was part of this uh, in quotations as nobody can see me doing quotations at uh, this Gang of Four. W- what do we know about the other members? Well again as with Zhang Qing I feel that it's we probably shouldn't get too hung up on the Gang of Four because part of the reason they have such prominence is because it was so convenient to the authorities afterwards to say Mao made a mistake, but he was led astray by these people. You know, it was all all really their fault. Um, so there were um, a couple of figures who came from a sort of propaganda, uh, sort of literary, uh, ideological background, uh, one of whom, in fact, had written this critique, um, critique of the historical play that I mentioned that is sort of regarded as the opening shot of the Cultural Revolution. And then the fourth member of the Gang of Four, Wang Hongwen, was only around 30, actually, when the Cultural Revolution started. He was very young. Um, he was from a proletarian background. Um, and through his sort of enthusiastic pursuit of the early stages of the Cultural Revolution, uh, then sort of won this place in Mao's favour. But there were other figures who were really critical, like Kang Sheng, the security chief, Lin Biao, most obviously, although he was put on trial posthumously after the Cultural Revolution as well. So they certainly weren't the only ones responsible. And although there was unquestionably blood on their hands, you know, they were not the person ultimately responsible for the Cultural Revolution, namely Mao. I think we've come to my favourite part of the podcast, which is talking about the personality cult. And this is something I'm really interested in. I find Mao's personality cult beyond interesting because he's done something that Hitler and Stalin just couldn't achieve. And he just did it better, basically. And you've already mentioned his personality cult a few times. But do talk us through what what actually was it? What was the nitty gritty? He was genuinely venerated um, by many, many people. But he was, of course, venerated by them because there had been such an extraordinary effort of propaganda um, devoted to creating uh, and maintaining his place as this great figure of authority and benevolence, um, someone who is godlike, not only in the sense that he's um, sort of all powerful and all knowing, but he's just omnipresent as well. And so when you uh, see uh, what there was at the time, you look at the the matchboxes and the quilts and the basins and towels and mirrors and absolutely every part of everyday life, you know, maths books, 
had a picture of Mao upon them um, or Mao's quotations upon them. Everywhere you went, there would be Mao's quotations up on the walls. It'd be Mao's quotations. It was Mao on the front page of the newspapers every day. Um, there was nothing that sort of did not involve him. I mean, there was at one stage in the Cultural Revolution, uh, people would have to sort of greet each other with a, a sort of a phrase from the Little Red Book, for example, if they were going to the market or using the telephone, they were told. Um, everything was about glorifying Mao, and he just was this constant presence in people's lives. This is something that had been built up ahead of the Cultural Revolution and that enabled the Cultural Revolution and as I said, Lin Biao, who would be Mao's sort of next heir apparent after Liu Shaoqi died, but then was him uh, himself died when he fell from favour. Um, he was really critical to setting that up. So he um, comes up with the Little Red Book, essentially, which is initially sort of distributed to soldiers and so forth. I mean, the Little Red Book, I believe, is still the second most published book in the world uh, after the Bible, because there were simply so many copies produced at the time. Similarly, with Mao badges, there were billions of Mao badges produced, you know, more than uh, one for every member of the population. In fact, Mao himself reportedly said, give me back my aeroplanes, because they were using up so much aluminium producing these things. It, it's just staggering when you think about it. And so there is this world in which you're taught to revere this man. And you're also taught it's a very intimate personal relationship as i said he's there around you all the time he's guiding your thinking and school children are taught you know mother and father are dear but chairman mao is dearer so it's a very personal powerful relationship in that way as well i think can i just say i'm one of these before beth goes into her next question i'm one of these people that has the book the little red book and uh I, before before we jump into the next question i've been going through this because it's been a while it's been a long time since i've had a look through this like i said i was only at university a few years ago so i've come across one of these quotes that i just want to read which is about criticism and self-criticism and uh quote mao states the speech of the chinese communist party national conference on propaganda work god that's a mouthful in 1957 he quotes the Communist Party does not fear criticism because we are Marxists. The truth is on our side and the basic masses, the workers and the peasants are on our side. I just, do you know what? Half of his quotes look great on paper, but my God, does this just not work in reality? And I think the thing is, he was so skilled at understanding mass emotion and how to evoke it. I mean, he's a great, um, he's great at rhetoric, as you say, that he comes up with these very powerful phrases, you, you know, political power grows out of a barrel of a gun, things that are still remembered now. Um, and at the same time, he's actually very good at using his silence uh, and his absence sometimes and at using his symbolic power. So, again, in the very early stages of the Cultural Revolution in July, he at one stage goes and swims in the Yangtze to kind of show that he's back with a vengeance. It's this great sort of symbolic show. I'm battling the wind and the waves. Um you know, it's going to be tough times ahead, but I'm in charge and I've, I'm virile and strong and I'm going to see this through. So he's, ex although a lot of people contribute to the personality cult and it's fueled as much as anything, I think, by their realisation that sort of sycophancy is really the only way for them to advance. Mao is also right at the centre of this, orchestrating it, and he's very good at it. He's very skilled. 
So then coming into, because obviously that's very much from the Chinese perspective and what's happening on the ground. If we then move sort of into the more Western world, what what do the do? Well, firstly, do the West know about the Cultural Revolution? Um, and if they do, what is their reaction to it? How do they perceive this in a, in a political perspective or how do they think this will affect their own sort of relations with that part of the world? China is obviously a very closed place at that point. It becomes even more hostile to any form of external influence during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it's obviously broken things off with the Soviet Union. We've had the Sino-Soviet split already. So there is limited knowledge, certainly, of what is happening. I mean, even people who had been sort of fellow travellers who were there in China precisely because of their sympathy for the communist cause were then, uh, in many cases, sort of detained or thrown out and so forth. It's clear, obviously, that something is happening. People struggle to understand it. I mean, not just the West. One of the, the things that always sticks in my mind is even North Korean officials at the time said, well, it's a great madness. It's got nothing in common with either culture or a revolution. So I think there was this sense of bemusement, not really understanding what was going on beyond a power struggle and some sort of ideological crusade, not having a real understanding of it. Uh, and of course, maybe it was not reasonable to expect people outside to understand it because not many people in China really could make sense of it either. Um, in sort of terms of the global politics, I mean, for the US, of course, defeating the Soviet Union was more important than the Cultural Revolution. So they, in fact, have their great thaw with China during the Cultural Revolution in the midst of all this. In terms of popular sentiment, um, there was certainly a good deal of enthusiasm in the West for it. Um, I think on the left, we, we're obviously seeing a time where, as well as the sort of the swinging 60s consumer culture that's going on, there was this very powerful counterculture in the 60s, um, sort of revolutionary movements elsewhere, right across Europe and the West that actually took their cue from Mao and from the Cultural Revolution to some degrees, or what they thought the Cultural Revolution was. And um, Julia Lovell's book actually on, on Mao is very interesting in terms of its his global influence um, over the years. There's a complete naivety, I think, about what's involved, precisely because people obviously don't know about the killings and so forth. There's an extraordinary story of... Um, Deng Xiaoping meeting Shirley MacLaine at a White House banquet in 1979. I know it sounds probably like I've made this up, but I can assure you this did apparently happen. So he's sitting next to her um, at this White House banquet and she starts saying to him, oh, yes, you know, I met this Chinese scientist and, um, you know, he told me he was sent down to labour in the countryside. Even though he was this top scientist, he actually learned so much from working in the fields. And Deng Xiaoping, who himself had been purged and sent to work in a tractor factory during the Cultural Revolution, just cuts her off and says to her, he lied. So there was this very clear sense, certainly for people from people within China, that a lot of people in the West had no idea, even um, in the years afterwards, of what the Cultural Revolution had really involved. When people did try and talk about it, I think some people on the left were very resistant to that message. So um, Pierre Rickman, the great Sinologist, um, was one of the first to write quite caustically about what seemed to be happening. And he uh, was certainly sort of criticised and attacked by for that by people. 
And I think even now there's a real lack of knowledge about it. I mean, I remember I was shocked when I was in China, Michael Gove came on a visit as education secretary and wrote a piece uh, in which he said that Chinese universities needed, sorry, that British universities needed a cultural revolution like the one Chinese universities had just gone through. Now, obviously he was talking about modern times, but the fact that he could invoke this era in which so many great scholars had been brutally persecuted and in some cases killed, just as this sort of glib catchphrase I thought was really indicative of how little the cultural revolution is still known. And I think people even now have this very cartoonish image of it that doesn't really understand its complexity or its horror or or the way that it sort of still uh, influences and shapes China to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And that that does lead quite nicely then on to our our sort of summing up our last question. Uh, Obviously, as you've just mentioned, you know, the Communist Party is obviously still the the ruling party in China. We're well aware of of the political side of what's going on in the world today. Free speech is still not an an accepted part of, of how China operates. But how do they remember the Cultural Revolution today? Is it a still part of Chinese, the Chinese psyche or have they tried to move away from that? So in terms of the official response, um, Deng Xiaoping actually oversees the drafting of a a formal verdict on the Cultural Revolution, which calls it a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. But it's he makes it very clear to the people working on that verdict, even at the time, that the point of doing this is to unite people and get them to look ahead. So he doesn't want people to dwell on this. This is not about saying, let's put up this memorial. Let us remember how terrible the Cultural Revolution was. It's about trying to move on from it. In some ways, at first, remembering its horrors is quite useful because that helps to justify the party's turn away from Maoism, uh, which many people still supported despite the horrors um, and felt sympathy for towards the market and this quite cutthroat era of the the free market and much more sort of a much more individualistic time. So we saw this great outpouring of of scar literature from people who'd lived in the era, memoirs and novels and so forth, recalling the sort of the sufferings of the time. And in many ways, as I said, that was quite useful to authorities that they wanted people to think, you know, God, that was tough. Isn't it great that we're moving on? But um, it wasn't something that they wanted to keep dwelling on because they haven't repudiated Mao. It's still important to them to sort of uh, look back to Mao, hark back to his message. And over time, the subject has become more and more sensitive. And on top of that official silencing, which has meant things like the shuttering of archives and stopping people from publishing new histories of the Cultural Revolution and so forth. On top of that, we've seen a very um, personal impact of the Cultural Revolution, because so many people are simply traumatised by it. And they don't want to, or in some cases, just simply cannot they feel themselves unable to return to it Hmm. so it's not just about the authorities silencing people it is very much the Chinese people themselves as well uh, not wanting to address this and so as I said you have this paradox in which it's kind of everywhere but nowhere if you want to understand 
sort of the individualism of Chinese society, the way that family relationships are fractured, the way that the economy has developed. Uh, certainly Chinese politics today, particularly under Xi Jinping, you really need to understand the Cultural Revolution. And yet it's something that for the most part is not talked about. Now, there are particular parts. There's one particular part, which is basically when the young people are sent to the countryside. Um, that's something that happened to Xi Jinping. He spent seven years labouring in these very tough conditions. And that's kind of become a sort of creation myth for him that the state media is willing to talk about. You know, he suffered through this. He became stronger. Um, he was sort of he proved himself to be a man of the people. But for the most part, the authorities really don't want to talk about it. They certainly don't want to talk about the deaths, um, about the persecutions. And because, I mean, some people would say that it's partly because, you know, China is both, sorry, Mao is both China's Lenin and China's Stalin. You can't separate it neatly in the same way that, you know, you could in, in Russia say, well, it all went a bit wrong with Stalin, but it was kind of fine before that. I actually think it's sort of even more fundamental than that in a way, which is that once you start allowing people to criticise past leaders, why wouldn't they criticise you? If you're going to give them that room to discuss what's happened, you know, why why wouldn't they sort of discuss current politics? And what we've seen under Xi Jinping certainly is an increasingly rigid approach to history. He clearly sees history as being very important. He invokes it very regularly. Uh, when he first took the leadership, um, he talked about sort of taking up the baton of history. Uh, one of his first public acts as leader was to take his colleagues on the Politburo Standing Committee down to the museum for this historical exhibition, which is all about how the Communist Party saved China. Uh, and then very quickly, he um, attacks this idea of historical nihilism, which he sees as a peril, an existential peril to the party on a par with things like Western democracy. So history has become much more carefully con um, controlled. And that means that while the Cultural Revolution isn't completely taboo, and there is discussion of it, and it does um, appear sort of glancingly and you can buy books on it, it's still very much uh, policed and increasingly policed in the way that people discuss it. So, Tanya, thank you so much for that. That's been absolutely fascinating. It's not an area of history I know much about at all, but that's been absolutely fascinating to hear from you. Um, just very quickly, could you just tell us again a bit more about your your book, where it can be found, the name of it, just so that if any of our listeners also want to find out a bit more, they know what they're looking for. So my book is Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting the Cultural Revolution. And in fact, to me, it is very much a book about now um, rather than the past. It's about how the Cultural Revolution still shapes China to these days, how it plays out in the trauma that people feel, in the relationships that people have in the politics. Um, and this is a kind of comparison we've seen even recently in protests in China that people have said, we want reform, not the Cultural Revolution. So there's a sense, perhaps, that echoes of that time are coming back. And to me, um, I could say I was here on this show under false pretenses, in a sense, because I, I was interested in it in terms of what it said about China now. But I also hope that beyond that, people won't see it simply as a book about China and the 1960s, but as a book that is about how human beings face impossible decisions and what we do, and then how we go on afterwards and how we try to make sense of that when the worst has happened. I certainly saw parallels with our own politics. Um, I'm not the first, and first person to point out that Donald Trump is quite a Maoist figure in his kind of love of disruption and um, 
evoking mass emotion um, and turning the crowd um, against political structures and so forth. But also, I think just in terms of human nature, frankly, and the way we behave, that I hope people will see this not as being a book about them over there, but as being a book about all of us, ultimately. Absolutely. And Tanya, again, once again, thank you so much for joining us here on History Hack today. Thank you so much. I know I've really enjoyed it and I know Alina has as well. So thank you very much, Tanya. Thanks so much for having me on. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.